0: This is a download from BFM 89.9, the business station. Yeah, and I think that's why people feel so drained. It's the idea that on social media, for example, everyone just shows their highlight reels. No one shows you their struggles. And I think the more we put this kind of positive... I think what happens is once we start putting our, ourselves out there in the kind of positive light, we then try to live up to this ideal that can never be reached in a sense. Mm-hmm. And so that takes an emotional toll. It takes a physical toll sometimes. And that's why you're getting things like um, you know, increase in mental health issues, such as stress, anxiety, and depression, because... The more we're chasing this stuff, the the more we're realizing, I have no idea what I'm doing. I'll keep doing it anyway. Like you said earlier, Mm -hmm. the people who are aware of what's happening to them, Mm -hmm. but they can't cut themselves off from that cycle.
1: BFM 89.9 You're listening to me Ahmad Fuad Rahman On Night School The show that explores Concepts, theories and society We are joined this week By our regular friend Sandy Clark Welcome back man Thanks for having me And the discussion today is Getting over yourself Or finding a way around The uh, culture of narcissism That contemporary consumerism breeds. I guess well Let me me start by Painting uh, I guess a picture of the problem I guess, mass consumerism, ironically, because it is mass, thrives on promoting a certain picture of individuality where the marketplace offers uh, ex- you know, um, ways to curate or personalize your identity. And it tells you that the best way to do this is through buying or obtaining more and more products and mm-hmm. experiences, right? And I think it's good to note how this has become more sophisticated over time because now people are talking about inconspicuous consumption where you're no longer buying fancy watches or jewelry or nice shoes. You're buying experiences. Um, And unfortunately, the education industry has become that as well, right? Where, you know, getting a postgraduate degree is, you know, now uh, marketed as well. Yeah. (laughs) So as part of you, you know, fulfilling yourself and better fashioning your uh, desirability in the marketplace, right? So, it seems like we're just increasingly colonized by this infrastructure. And is this the only way to be? So that's the long and short of it. Sandy Clark,
0: take it from here. Well, thanks for <laughs> inviting me in to speak about this light subject. Um, I, I think the, the interesting point about getting over yourself, um, the implication then is that you're sort of under the weight of your own expectations, desires, attachments, judgments, And so we kind of have this idea of keeping up with the Joneses in a sense. You know, you go to Ikea, for example, and it's like, you know, buy all this unique stuff that everyone else is buying, you know, in order to sort of keep up with the trends. And I think it's becoming to the point where we're kind of losing our identity of who we are based on the image that we're kind of fed through this marketplace consumerism. Uh, I think it serves to a point it can be a positive thing. But now we're reaching the stage where it becomes too excessive. Mm -hmm. You know, like you say, fancy watches or designer clothes or experiences. And you think, who's actually being impressed by this? And someone once told me that in a self-centered world, no one cares So it's the idea that people aren't even looking at you Mm -hmm. because they're Mm -hmm. too busy worried about how they come across to you. Um, But I think in terms of the psychological value for advertisers and businesses, I mean, they can tap into that kind of insecurity all day long Mm -hmm. and we'll keep getting the wallet out kind of thing. Yeah. Yeah.
1: So it's interesting that fundamentally what is driving this is a deeper sense of lack a deeper Mm -hmm. sense of insufficiency. But one that is also compelling, right? Because... You know, I teach students who are in the range of 18 to 21. Uh, They're very media savvy. Everybody's on various social media platforms. And they get it. They get that consumerism is shallow. They get that this is very alienating. But they're hooked on it anyway. And I think this is where the predicament is. It's not that... We're just in Plato's cave, you know, where we're just sort of like enthralled by the spectacle. There's a side of us that finds it deeply unsettling that Mm -hmm. we we are. And I think that adds another layer of suffering to it, right? In that on one hand, you know, you are a part of the system. But on the other hand, you know, but there doesn't seem to be many alternatives,
0: right? Yeah, and I think, um, as you mentioned there, that idea that we are aware of what's going on. And I think uh, Mark Manson in his book, uh, The Subtle Art of How Not to Give an F-Star CK, um, <laughs> he uh, I practice that. Um, he talks about this idea of we're constantly pursuing positive experiences, which then paradoxically becomes a negative experience because we're then never happy. So to come back in your point about we are aware about what's going on with Instagram, social media, presenting an image, intellectually we can see what that does to us, but emotionally we're still so, have this deep-seated desire and insecurity to match what everyone else is doing. So it's like that FOMO thing, you know, the fear of missing out. Mm -hmm. So if I'm not doing this thing, then I fall behind. And if you're between the ages of 18 to 21, that's not a good thing uh, from your perspective. But also you tend to find as people get older as well now, they're still buying into that because it becomes a kind of deep-seated, You basically become sort of programmed in a sense. And I think there was one ex um, marketing boss at Facebook come out and said something to that effect. Mm -hmm. Look, we know how to tap into your, you know, what you're after, Mm -hmm. what you want to shape, what you want to cultivate. And we know exactly where to guide you. Right. Um, So people can read these articles and it's like, oh, that's what they're doing. I need to post this on Facebook to warn everyone. (laughs) It's like, guys. Yeah.
1: Yeah. (laughs) Um, it's interesting that you describe this as, pro- as a problem of attachment, mm. right? Um, because we are clamoring for something. It seems that yeah. by doing... I mean, well, there's a tactile element to consumerism, right? Mm. There's that excitement of holding on to this new product. Or there's also the investment we make to shares and retweets, you know, where it gives the impression of affirmation, right? But all this, I think can be adequately captured by the term attachment, Yeah. right? Trying to hold on to something. I mean, how do you understand attachment and its workings in, in the picture we described?
0: Well, we're trying to sort of have a validation of self through the approval of others. And where we can't find how to do that within ourselves, we always look to the external, but it's never quite satisfying enough. And so this idea of attachment is this idea of, just one more, just one more like, just one more retweet, just one more mm-hmm. fancy watch. This next upgrade of the phone will make me satisfied. It will fill that void, whatever I'm feeling inside. And I think one of the, the, the things about say mindfulness or meditation, for example, is that it sort of teaches you the, the idea or it instills in you this idea that no one else's judgment means much in terms of how they see you superficially, Right. right. Um, you know, who cares? You know, in fact, one of the I did a workshop, one of my first workshops quite some time ago, and it didn't go so good. And, um, you know, I I came home and I was beating myself up. Oh, my God, these people are going to think I'm an idiot. You know, I didn't do this right. I didn't do that right. And then a thought came into my head like these guys will forget you in about two days and -hmm. they're not going to be thinking about, you now. So get over yourself right? right. sort of thing, you know, because we attach too much uh, value to the judgment of others to the point where we try to mold our sense of self to their expectations rather than to take time to figure out who we want to be, who we are, how we want to shape ourselves. And so we get kind of lost in transition in a sense. Yeah,
1: I wonder though, if we might be throwing the baby at the bathwater in that regard, because I do think that, Judgment and validation and approval from others matter. I I think the problem is when uh, we seek them where we shouldn't or we somehow anticipate more than what they actually do, Mm -hmm. right? So, because for me, one of the issues I have with the culture of narcissism is that it really erodes or forecloses any possibility of genuine community, Mm -hmm. right? That because we're so stuck inside our heads that... Relating to others become more problematic, right? so how then do we cultivate a healthier attitude to others you know uh, without falling into the trappings of these superficial affirmations you know
0: I mean, like you say there there is a value in caring about what people think and and certainly we we all do, but I think the emphasis becomes then. What is the most important thing that you're willing to be judged on that Mm -hmm. has a purpose? So say, for example, I don't know, you're giving a presentation at university. You want people to judge your performance or your content because then they can give you feedback to say, this is what you're doing well. Here's where you need to improve. That kind of judgment is is valuable. Mm -hmm. But where someone says, I don't like your watch or your shoes or I don't like the way you speak or the TV shows you watch. Who cares? Mm -hmm. You know, it's that thing. But we buy too much into this excessive um, need for validation. I think that's the point. Mm -hmm. Um, It's much like, you know, the idea of thinking, thinking is very valuable it helps us to create and innovate. But when we get caught up too much in this excessive rumination, Mm -hmm. then it becomes a problem. So I think it's the same with the judgment uh, aspect.
1: Yeah. Uh, What is the self in this picture, right? Because on one hand, that seems to be the problem, the ego. Right, that there is a self that awaits affirmation, that there is a self that can be fashioned a yeah. certain way. When, uh, in effect, if you take maybe a psychoanalytic view, uh, there really is nothing, and that the self really is just like a, a cultural construct in a way, right? And that when you see that the ego that you're trying to buttress is in effect better off without that sort of like indulgence and investment, you're freer from attachments. You're freer from yeah. the, the neurosis that results from wanting, you know, external validation, mm-hmm. right? So you nip it at the bud in a sense yeah. where, you know, the ego is just a fantastical construct and uh, you're okay with a thin one, <laughs> you <Yeah. know? laughs> I mean, um, but I understand that the Buddhists might have a different conception of the self. What's the alternative way of thinking about the self if it's not just something that awaits consumption?
0: So the Buddhist idea of the self, a lot of people have this misconception. The Buddha said there is no self, but he doesn't say that anywhere. What he says is that the self is not what we think it is. So he described the five aggregates of being, which I can't remember all five, but it's something like mental perceptions, thoughts, feelings. So all these things that you use to identify yourself as yourself, but which are so fleeting, you know, because you can have a different emotion from one moment to the next. That's not you. You know, you're still there kind of thing. So the real self, if you like, is what underlies those thoughts, feelings, emotions, perceptions. And the author, Yuval Noah Harari, who wrote Homo sapiens and Homo mm-hmm, deus, mm-hmm. he came up with a really good explanation on how to find, start to find yourself. And he said the first thing you have to do is get really comfortable with boredom said, because we're always, like you talked about, we're always trying to distract ourselves and to go on to the next thing. He said, but boredom is actually one of life's greatest teachers because if you can sit with that and basically be with that, then you start to strip away the layers. Mm -hmm. And that's sort of, I suppose, a kind of, I don't know how you would say, a sort of modern version of the idea of meditation, Mm -hmm. which is to sit with whatever is there without distraction. Mm -hmm. And then you get those kind of insights into who actually, am I? And what's my purpose? And mm-hmm. what really makes me tick? You know, wearing designer clothes and driving a particular car, that's changeable. Mm-hmm. Whereas you yourself aren't. But the more you focus on the external stuff, the consumerism, the marketing, um, you kind of get lost in the in the white noise of the whole thing. Yeah,
1: I, I like that. Um, I would also add that boredom is in a lot of ways, intimidating, mm-hmm. right? We tend to brush it off and and think of it as just like time passing or something but Adam Phillips has a very interesting account of it where he talks about it as a kind of inner death precisely because it compels us to want to then feel alive mm-hmm. right uh, and we do this in in various ways you know from harmful to harmless but for a lot of people boredom actually means grappling with the void yeah right because you can't be still largely because you're hearing things that, you know, your th- the thoughts that you have been blocking out or uh, you might have to really think about some of the questions that you've been ignoring. Yeah. It basically means that you, you're closer to yourself than you otherwise would if you suddenly decide to go to the cinema, or go to McDonald's, right? Um, so, how does one cross that threshold, right? And uh, maybe that's where, I think like you said, uh, it's a question of meditation too, right? That, yeah confronting boredom actually requires a bit of
0: wherewithal. Yeah, yeah, you need that and it takes practice. So I would I would suggest doing things like maybe guided meditation to begin with or even just relaxing and listening to your favorite music, you know, and just spending time with that piece of music. Don't try and attack boredom straight away because you won't manage it. You basically try to kind of taper off, you know, so you listen to the classical music or the rock music or... Something that, that doesn't require, so you don't watch your favorite comedy show because there's right. too much going on there. Right, right. Listen to some Mozart or to some something that doesn't, some relaxing whale sounds or something like that, and then taper that off. It was uh, the Buddhist abbot in London's monastery, uh, Amaravati, he's a guy called Ajahn Amaro. And he said to me, there's never a time when the mind is relaxed. He said, you know, when you sit in your big comfy chair after a day's work and you breathe the sigh of relief, he said, within three seconds, your mind will say, okay, what next? Mm-hmm. You can't relax, he said, but you need to be able to sort of persevere with that staying where you are. And it takes practice and it takes time, but you need to put in the work, essentially. There's no kind of uh, quick fix in that sense. Very interesting
1: Let's take a break. And there's a lot to process there. So I think the break will help us all. Um, and we will return to our discussion about getting over yourself. Uh, I'm Ahmad Farahama, alongside counsellor and author Sandy Clark on BFM 89.9, The Business Station. BFM 89.9, I'm Ahmad Fuad Rahmat. This is Night School, the show that explores concepts, theories, and society. And we are discussing ways of getting over yourself. Uh, it's harder than it sounds. And to help us think through that is Sandy Clark, author and counselor. In the first part of the show, we sketched out the problem and ended on a note about confronting boredom and the painful journey <laughs> that requires. So just to recap, uh, you said that you know this is coming from a Buddhist abbot. Right? Who, t- mm-hmm. who told you that? It's hard to be still with yourself. I mean, I assume he's speaking from years if not decades of meditation. Can't so. imagine so long. <laughs> so, what hope is there for mere mortals <laughs> like us? You know <laughs> what I
0: mean? Yeah. No, I, I. Yeah. That was the question I asked him as well. So like, what chance have I got? Of, a, um, yeah. But he said, "Look, you you have to stick with it. You know, you have to." He basically put it in a sense of. You have to become more minimalist mm-hmm. in what you're doing, you know. So don't be texting on your phone, watching Netflix while writing emails at the same time, kind of thing. Yeah. Take some time. <laughs> maybe sounds like that's something you might do, um, but uh, take the time to just take five minutes, ten minutes every day, and be still with yourself, or, or the piece of music, or whatever. Yeah. And build it up like that. There's really no uh, way around that. But um, for me, I mean, to give you an example, I mean. Sometimes when I'm sitting at home and you know I've finished my work and I'll think, okay, what do I do next? And then I'll say to myself, no, 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 sit there and just give yourself two minutes just to do nothing. So you have to have that conversation with yourself. Mm-hmm. You have to catch yourself because it's such an automatic process. When you catch the mind, it's always looking for the next thing. So you actually have to be a bit, uh, have that wherewithal that you mentioned earlier to catch yourself and sort of perceive what's going on in your mind Mm -hmm. to take that time and say, actually, I don't have to rush off at this minute, this Mm -hmm. point in time, just slow down. And you tend to find that actually when you slow down and you become used to being in that moment, then you start to feel a kind of dissipation of that stress and tension, simply for taking that one moment or two minutes time. Yeah,
1: Catching yourself, I like that phrase, you know, because it's a skill, (laughs) you don't like catching anything. Uh, because I think what makes us interesting is that there's, there's a few things going on inside any given time. We like to think that we're very centered mm-hmm. and that there's this coherent image of self that is really driving things. When in effect, you're getting a storm of competing voices, competing impulses, right? Yeah. And being able to catch one <laughs> and kind of like, <laughs> you know, put it in dialogue. Mm-hmm. Uh, with yourself, whichever self <laughs> that's steering the process at the moment um, is, is actually very valuable, right? And this is where I think it, it's very, very helpful to to be able to sit with difficult emotions, mm-hmm. right? Because I think part of the reason why consumerism has tempted us to continues to is because it provides a solution to extinguish those ugly feelings, yeah. right? When in effect, allowing us To sit in with guilt or to sit in with embarrassment or to sit in with resentment even Mm -hmm. allows us to do just that like you said catching yourself and go right what's going on here you know what is it about this feeling that is unsettling why Mm -hmm. is this feeling associated with that memory you know and uh, again it's, it's, it's a grappling not everybody gets to do but i like it that you describe it as a way of just catching that frequency, you know.
0: Yeah, and I think you make a really good point there about how we just chase after the quick fix of consumerism to distract ourselves from those negative experiences. But if you look at any aspect of life, anything that's worth having comes through some form of suffering. So you go to the gym and you do some weights and that can be painful, but you get the end result if you go there regularly enough. Um, You're doing a master's or a PhD, that can be torture in the process, but you're getting something of value at the end. So any kind of thing in life worthwhile having, there's always some kind of suffering to get through before you get to the, the desired outcome. So the real way to overcome suffering is to go through it, not to go around it or mm-hmm. to pretend it's not there. And what you're doing is when you're trying to distract yourself from whichever negative emotion or situation that that's there, first of all, you're missing out on the lesson that it's there to provide you with. And second of all, you're really stunting your growth, both emotionally and psychologically in terms of your contentment and happiness. Happiness isn't something that you can buy or that you can kind of just manifest out of thin air. It does come through a process of struggle. Um, And you see this across, you know, plant life and animal life that when they grow, like for example, when lobsters shed their shells, there's a real point where they are vulnerable Mm -hmm. uh, when they don't have a shell at all and they have to really watch themselves and be on guard before they grow their shell back. You know, when trees grow, et cetera, they're very very vulnerable when they're young. um, You know, any kind of animal or or wildlife you can think of goes through a period of struggle. Caterpillars to butterflies, for example, the cocoon struggle. So that idea of not engaging with the struggle or the suffering um, really kind of misses the point, I think.
1: That's very interesting. Can we talk a little bit about the I don't know, I guess the void, you know? I mean, what is the Buddhist account of it? I mean, there's an evolutionary account of it that I find very interesting that we're just wired to be extra alert, you know, and that keeps us restless and and sharp. And, you know, where maybe not long ago you have to worry about a tiger or a bear, now there's none of that. So there's that residue anxiety Mm -hmm. that's actually fueling this sort of restless cycle of consumption and pleasure-seeking, right? Yeah. That's helpful, but limited, right? So what would be the
0: Buddha's account of why desire is so restless? Because it's ever-changing, and it's very insatiable. So one of the criticisms of Buddhism sometimes is that it can be a nihilistic religion, which would have been fine if all Buddha said was, life is suffering, deal with it. (laughs) So there's no transcending that at all. But his um, second, third, and fourth points were that suffering exists because of our attachments and aversions, that the way to go beyond that is to you know, engage in things like right effort, mindfulness, concentration, right action, et cetera. Mm-hmm. So that's the Eightfold Path of Buddhism. Um, so the void comes because we're kind of being pulled in all kinds of directions. And where do we get that satisfaction from? Uh, we go through multiple relationships. There's dating apps where you can meet up with 50 people and get no satisfaction whatsoever. Everything is about chasing that thing that we can't see. And because of that, I like to think of it as every time we try to think outside ourselves to find that satisfaction, we're actually kind of removing a piece of ourselves. Mm-hmm. So the void grows the more we chase that kind of perpetual uh, satisfaction that never right. comes. It's the, the Buddhist idea is, Chasing desire outside yourself or, or satisfaction outside yourself is like drinking salt water huh. uh, when you're thirsty, the more you drink the more you need uh, so yeah. that's the idea
1: yeah it's interesting uh in that you know you have the Lacanian picture where desire requires that you empty out right that you devalue what you have mm. right because uh, you can't keep searching if you somehow overlook or sidestep the benefits advantages that that's already like in your possession right um and I guess that resonates with what you describe in that you know, in order for us to constantly accumulate, there's a part of us that has to die in order to, to you know, because we're finite, but desire is infinite. Yeah. In order to squeeze as much you know, ambition or yearning, a lot has to be put aside or cast away. You know, uh, and there's a, there's a certain violence there, and I think that's the 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 dark side of it.
0: Yeah, and I think that's why people feel so drained. It's the idea that on social media, for example, everyone just shows their highlight reels. No one shows you the struggles. And I think the more we put this kind of positive, I think what happens is once we start putting our, ourselves out there in the kind of positive light, we then try to live up to this ideal that can never be reached in a sense. Mm-hmm. And so that takes an emotional toll. It takes a physical toll sometimes. And that's why you're getting things like, um, you know, increase in mental health issues, such as stress, anxiety, and depression, because, the more we're chasing this stuff, the the more we're realizing, I have no idea what I'm doing. I'll keep doing it anyway. Like you said earlier, Mm -hmm. the people who are aware of what's happening to them, Mm -hmm. but they can't cut themselves off from that cycle. Interesting. What's
1: the alternate conception of self-love in this picture? Because the standard picture is that, you know, loving yourself means giving what you deserve to yourself. I mean, I don't know, but let me just rephrase it. But it seems that the way that loving yourself is pictured in this sort of consumerist, narcissistic economy is that, yeah. you know, you keep feeding it. Yeah. Whatever, whatever is demanding, you know, in loud volumes, you just sort of yield to. And anything else is a form of neglect, right? So it's mm-hmm. basically like catering to the insecurities, you know, as much as possible yeah. and in high volumes. I mean, what would be an alternate picture to loving yourself in that?
0: I think the word you used there was quite apt which is you know this idea of self-care is giving yourself what you deserve but how do you define that how do you know what you deserve because you have no idea what you need in a sense because you don't know yourself mm-hmm. so it becomes this perpetual cycle I think if you if you look at it from a perspective of say junk food versus, Healthy food, right? So, your junk food is a social media, it's a consumerism, it's the chasing after that one more thing. The healthy food idea of self love, the, the proper substantial stuff, is trying to cultivate a life of meaning and purpose, getting engaged with ideas, topics, projects, um, studies, whatever, that, that really kind of bring you alive, that you can then start to kind of realize yourself in terms of your strengths and what you can really contribute to. I mean, you, you see it in spiritual teachings and in philosophical discourses all the time. The way to happiness is to be of use, to be of service, to be contributing to outside of yourself. So I think that's where the substantial self-love comes from, where you're kind of using yourself as a kind of vehicle to enhance your strengths and then put them to use yeah. for other people because this other element, the junk food element where you're just chasing stuff, that's always that's always going to keep going. Whereas this other stuff where you're, you're trying to cultivate a, a life of meaning and purpose, what that means to you, that's going to fill you up and that's going to give you a kind of well of self-esteem and self-compassion as well in a substantial sense.
1: Yeah. I think there's a strong defensive element to narcissism right in that we have to think of ourselves more than we need to out of a sense that no one else will do that for us right so you know it's actually kind of packaged often neatly in the saying that you know at the end of the day it's all about what you need at the end of the day it's all about what you can do for yourself you have to it's this sort of ethos of self-reliance that that sort of becomes so dominant and one of the side effects to that if you take it too seriously is this constant obsession with the self and you know that typically i mean one of the reasons why we have this conversation is because at the end of the day there's a way in which that can be excessive Mm -hmm. and it becomes difficult to stop thinking about yourself right now there's an evolutionary purpose for this and that it keeps you somewhat alert to danger yeah right but gone are the days when you have to sort of you know always be weary of you know, a lion on the corner or a bear pouncing mm-hmm. out of the bushes or anything. Mm-hmm. So there's this excess energy that isn't being channeled in contemporary life because we live such sheltered lives. So the sense that you have to take care of yourself mm-hmm. becomes so abstract. Yeah. It's no longer about these immediate physical dangers. And that energy then becomes channeled to to basically musings about your inadequacies and stuff like that, Mm -hmm. right? So, uh, I mean, I like that account of why the self can be very, very restless and very, like a very, like, torrential and contested terrain. But what would be the Buddhist account of why the self is so restless?
0: Because we substitute survival for presence. So, and what I mean by that is, like you say, we don't Have any imperative to make sure we survive because we're pretty much covered these days in this age. Uh, So, this restlessness is about needing to be seen, Mm. um, needing to be um, validated, to be approved, to be accepted. Mm -hmm. Um, But the trouble with that is when you look for this kind of thing externally, you're never going to be satisfied. Mm -hmm. And so, because it's always a fluctuating state, you know, some days you'll have people who, you know, lift you up some days you'll have people who bring you down. And so you don't have any sense of stability. So from the the Buddhist perspective, it's more about trying to find that kind of presence within yourself, that self-validation, self-acceptance. And that becomes a more healthy that becomes a healthier channel to sort of redirect that energy rather than looking for validation outside yourself. Because even if you do get it It won't be satisfying because it'll be for the wrong reasons, because Mm -hmm. you'll perceive it to mean a certain thing, Mm -hmm. or it won't be enough, or it won't be valuable enough. So, from the Buddhist perspective, it's sort of like try to find ways to become content within yourself, to be, you know, to appreciate what you already have, to appreciate who you already are, Mm -hmm. that you needn't so much change to become. Uh, you're a better version of yourself, as the saying goes, it's more about enhancing what's already there. So even that slight shift in perspective can help because yeah. it's not about changing who you are from this person to a next, you know, another version, but it's about using who you already are mm-hmm. and just basically kind of expanding that in a more positive way. Yeah, I like it that you emphasise how the shift
1: that we really need can happen in like almost a split second. It's yeah. kind of weird that moment when you go, aha. Uh-huh. I've been on the wrong track this entire time. Mm -hmm. I remember being on a mini meditational circle back in the States. And, you know, we were just told to sit in silence for a bit. Mm -hmm. And, you know, we rarely do it. Back then, this was like a long time ago before we were so wired today to our screens. But back then, it was far less so than today. I'm talking about six, seven years ago. So there was a cross-legged and... Trying to be silent. And eventually I kind of got the hang of it. It was that, you know, there's this initial awkwardness where mm-hmm. the void just sort of like springs out. Uh, and <laughs> like, yes. you know, all that, that psychological aggression that you you inflict on in yourself suddenly like comes out full force. And then it kind of plateaus and calms down. And then you realize, oh, you know, I think, you know, this is a good place to be. I think this is it. You know, like, oh wow, I should just kind of maintain this. And then uh, I asked. You know, uh, I, I did like a time check and it turned out it was like two minutes or something. But it felt like <laughs> eternity. You know? yeah, yeah. But, and then I realized, like, how do people do this for, for days and weeks? You mm-hmm, know, because mm-hmm. sometimes that's what, you know, the, I guess the, the more elite of, you know, meditational practices ask for. Yeah, right? yeah. So it's kind of nuts that um, the threshold sometimes is actually very close, but yeah. we don't have the wherewithal to get there. You
0: know. Yeah, sort of. It it it's, it sounds like um was it Thomas Edison talked about the idea of um a lot of people give up just at the point where they're about to succeed. Right, right. You know, so it, it can like you say, you're almost always at the threshold. Right, right. And then you sort of go oh, okay, yeah, enough of that. Yep. Um but where if you're in a situation such as a silent meditation retreat, you don't have anywhere to go. And I think that's part of the benefit because you don't have any distractions. You don't have any plans. You don't right, have right. anyone demanding your attention. So you're effectively left with yourself and the kind of essential self as well, not the, the one that you think that you are. Right. That right. kind of disappears. I'm sure you'll you'll have that experience. And yeah. it just, you get to that point where it's like, oh, Okay, Yeah. you know, and th- this is where a, a lot of the accounts of Buddhist meditation masters who were reportedly enlightened, when they give these accounts, that's how they describe it, but on a sort of more sort of massive scale. So it's like, you know, they, they describe it like um, everything just falls away. And they, they actually, they say the, f- the first thing that they felt was um, stupidity. Mm-hmm, how did mm-hmm. I not see this yeah, yeah. so long ago? It's so obvious now. <laughs> yeah. Uh, that kind of idea. Yeah.
1: Yeah. Uh, Tell us a little bit about the mechanics of that, though. I mean, because now we have a very interesting picture of a self that is, in a way, thin. It's it's lighter, you know, because a lot of the clutter is sort of jettisoned. But it's so profound in its lightness, right? Mm -hmm. Because sometimes we think of the self as having a certain, like, depth or profundity in volumes, you know. But a lot of the contact I've made with that sort of moments tells me that, you know, clarity feels light. Yeah. You know, it's not like this like fireworks of wisdom or something like that. No, actually there's a lot of yeah. nothingness to yeah. it. In a way you feel like wow, I'm not, you know, burdened. Yeah. You know, it's not really knowledge either. It's not cognitive, no, right? It's no. a certain like arrival to a a standpoint and and not it's not necessarily loaded with factoids or anything like yeah, that. It yeah. is there's no statement that says mm-hmm. you are mm-hmm. You know, it's not like you lift the sword out of the stone or something, <laughs> nothing like that. Yeah. You know, you go, oh, okay, this is it. Um, okay, tell us a bit then as a closing, maybe as a closing sort of discussion, what happens to the excess self? You know, like the, um, the aggression of self-reflection or the aggression of self-hatred and self-criticism that, that leads to narcissism, right? What happens to all that? Like where? How does meditation clear that?
0: It lifts you up beyond it. So um, what you just described there about how this kind of realization is not cognitive and it mm-hmm. can't be because you can't intellectualize this kind of mm-hmm. stuff. You can to the point where you can argue and debate about it, but it becomes experiential, the mm-hmm. actual experience. So when the Buddha talks about enlightenment, for example, you know, he talks about, you know, going beyond the self in terms of, you know, he doesn't have any fixed opinions any fixed views there's no you know he I think in one of the teachings he said um, you know I don't argue with the world the world argues with me mm. so it's this idea that the world is constantly trying to force upon you conditioning right, opinions right. views cultural norms all this kind of thing and so you get caught up in that and you kind of draw on them to then define yourself mm-hmm. which is a kind of superficial uh, fragile and often um fluctuating state so right. that's why people talk about they need to get away to find themselves for example because right, right. they don't know who they are they don't because they try to think about who they are but it doesn't work on a thinking level like you say. So for me anyway I mean I I've experienced um a lot of changes throughout the years of meditation so for example I used to suffer a lot uh when I was younger with uh, social anxiety and mm-hmm. you know it was very image conscious and all that kind of stuff but that falls away and you, you, you kind of, it gets to the point where you you, you have that sense of absurdity. Mm-hmm, it's like, mm-hmm. why was I even bothered yep. about that in the yep. first place, you know? Because you, you lose yourself a uh, sense of self-importance, mm-hmm, in a sense. Mm-hmm. And and not, not that, I don't mean that in a bad way, but it, 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 you lose that feeling of beating yourself up right, right. Um, for the sake of other people's mm-hmm. expectations, perceptions, and yeah, so on. Yeah,
1: yeah. But why is it that some people need Years to get there. I guess that's my that's what I'm wondering in that that seems like, okay. is it instrumental to get rid of the added baggage or is there like, you know, levels to it in the sense you reach that sort of like profound lightness or profound nothingness? and then is there like a next level to i guess in martial arts it's like a blue belt and a purple belt (laughs) and then you know but what because people devote their lives to this right and i know people who do it on a regular basis that can relate to what we talk about Mm -hmm. but they still have jobs and and kids and stuff like that but i know that people who probably have reached that level too but found more to discover like what's What's at the end, was uh, what's it at the side
0: of that, I guess that's what I'm wondering. I'll let you know when I get there. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it, it, it's sort of uh, union in a sense, you know, the, 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 the idea that you think you have one level to go and then all of a sudden, all of these other levels start to appear. Right, right. Um, but it is a sort of progressive thing. It definitely doesn't happen at this sort of, you know, flick of a switch kind of thing. Right, right. Um, and so I think why some people take a long time to get there or even to make the progress is because it's uncomfortable Mm -hmm. to sit with yourself to sit with your thoughts to not engage with whatever's arising in your mind is it's very difficult but it's also very unfamiliar Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. and so it's sort of better the the devil you know in a sense for a lot of people so it's like this makes me feel uncomfortable i don't like certain parts of myself i'm very anxious i'm you know but at least i know this Mm -hmm. i don't know how that's going to affect me if i rise above this whole thing Mm -hmm. so it becomes a fear of the unknown in a sense right 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 but it doesn't happen but the thing is if if you do meditation or practice mindfulness it's not something that you wake up the next day and you're a completely different person. I mean, you still retain most of who you are. It's just that your traits change and the way that you view yourself and the relationship you have with your thoughts, feelings, identity, Mm -hmm. all of that shifts. But it's a very kind of natural, almost unconscious process. You don't realize it's happening until you reflect back.
1: Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So, yeah, I get a sense that there's this sort of, you know, the quality of it being after the fact almost. Yeah. Yeah, it's not like there's going to be like um, a gateway that announces itself or anything, right? Yeah. Uh, so that's that's at least my brief contact with it. But unfortunately, we have to pause here. And we can go on and on because there's a lot of the self to get over. But <laughs> we'll just <laughs> use this as a primer. Uh, Sandy
0: Clark, uh, you are on social media quite a bit. So tell us your handles. I am. I'm mostly on LinkedIn these days um, now that I've matured. Um, so less time on Instagram. Um, so you can find me at Sandy Clark, uh, just my name, and on Twitter, uh, real S Clark. Um, and I'm on Instagram as well. Great. Uh, if you great. want to see some pictures of dogs and stuff like that. <laughs> Scottish terriers and <No>? Doberman pups. <laughs> <laughs> so you can email the
1: show to BFMNightSchool gmail.com uh, Or look us up on Facebook Download our app at the Play Store Or the Apple App Store I'm Ahmad Fuad Alongside Santa Cloud this week Talking about getting over yourself And this is Night School on BFM 89.9 The Business Station